taking your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Our reading tonight is verses 9 through 13. Let us pray again for God's help. Our God and Father, we do come before you to ask for your help in hearing your word being read and preached. Give us ears to hear. Grant that we would hear by faith, recognizing your authority therein, recognizing the voice of the master who is indeed the one master we truly love. Guard our hearts, we pray, O Lord. Defend us against our enemy. Let us not have hard thoughts of you. Let us not have proud thoughts of you. Grant us, Lord, even to receive this word from you as if it were the last time we were to hear it in this life. Grant us, O Lord, we pray, a true godly earnestness and urgency to make do a right with what we hear, to take responsibility for its application in our lives, and to hold it fast with the tenacity of your own spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. God's word. The calling of Matthew to be a disciple of Christ is a profoundly important event for the church of Jesus Christ. The calling of Matthew shows us how Jesus calls any one of us into his kingdom, but it is not just the how of Jesus' calling that's important. It's the who. Jesus is pleased to call into his kingdom the very people we might prefer to keep out. He calls the kind of people good folk wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. And if your pole is longer, fill that in. He calls the untouchables. He calls our enemies. Who are the people you think are bad for the country in which you live? Who are the people you think are bad for the economy? Who are the people you think are bad for your town? your neighborhood? Who are the people you think are bad for your school? Who are the people you think are bad for your church? We are well trained in answering these questions, I think, 
most of us, and not just us, but all men, are skilled at identifying the bad people. We are skilled at knowing who to avoid, who to sidestep. We are skilled knowing who will decrease the overall value of our experience in any quadrant of life. But here's something we are not so skilled at, hoping for the bad people, praying for the bad people, proclaiming the gospel to the bad people. And there are two big reasons we should be very concerned about our lack of skill in these areas. First, bad people are the only kind of people Jesus calls into his kingdom. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says that at the very last verse of our text. The bad people, understand, are the very kind of people who have been divinely appointed to hear the gospel and believe it. Not the righteous people. No. Not the good people. The very kind of people we easily admire and wish there were more of. They are not appointed to hear the gospel and believe it. They have no physician sent for them. And if the bad people are always someone other than you, where does that leave you? Who then are you? Are you, not, are you not then one who is well and has no need of a physician yourself? The second big reason we should be concerned about how easily we spot the bad people is that being skilled at identifying bad people still leaves us powerless to help them. These Jewish Pharisees who are grinding their back molars against Jesus' dinner plans, these Pharisees of the first century were excellent at identifying bad people, but they could never get Matthew the tax collector to abandon his tax booth in Capernaum. They never got him to leave. In all their disapproval and disgust, of tax collectors, in all their cataloging the corruption and the abuse of tax collectors, in all their separation from tax collectors, not eating with them, in all this, the Pharisees could not get Matthew to want to be as good as they thought they were. They were powerless because there is no power to change a man by simply marking out his iniquities. What we see then in our text tonight is the only power that can change a man for eternity, and we see the kind of man this power changes. The only power is the irresistible call of Jesus Christ. This kind of power it is, it is reserved for the bad man, the wretched man, the sin-sick man. A man like Matthew, who it turns out is, is much like you and I, if we have eyes to see. Well, let me tell you a few things about Matthew. As you might have figured by now, Matthew is the same man who wrote this gospel that we are reading through. He was a Jewish man 
and became one of the 12 disciples. After the death of Christ and Christ's resurrection, there was Matthew, enduring in the faith, gathering with the early church in the upper room to wait for the Holy Spirit. Matthew also had another name, as many men did, Levi, which is used to identify him by Mark and by Luke. But here before us in Matthew 9, Matthew's recording his own call to Christ. Before his conversion, he worked as a Jewish tax collector. Now, to be a tax collector at this time in Israel was basically to be the most unpatriotic person in the country. In 63 BC, General Pompey conquered Jerusalem, and the Roman Empire began its occupation of Israel. And if you were a tax collector, you, in effect, worked for Rome. That's how people regarded you. Your work connection for the enemy, the occupier, made you an enemy, a collaborator. And not only that, tax collectors were famous for collecting more than they needed to. In May of 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. Within five days, the Dutch people surrendered, and the Nazis occupied them for five more years. The Dutch people hated the Nazis, but you know who they hated even more? They hated other Dutch people who sympathized and served and worked for the Nazis who occupied the Netherlands. As a tax collector, Matthew was seen as a sympathizer, a man fiercely hated by his own people. Pious Jews considered tax collectors apostate from the religion of Israel. They also considered them robbers because of that overcollection. They lined their pockets, tax collectors did. So you might say Matthew was an unashamedly conspicuous sinner. Everyone could see his wretchedness, including himself. And here's the thing. He didn't care. He did not care. But this is the very man Jesus calls into his kingdom. And Jesus doesn't call Matthew because Matthew was willing to meet Jesus halfway. Now, Jesus reaches all the way across the table into Matthew's hardened, unashamed wretchedness and pulls him out of one kingdom and plants him in another. This is the power and authority of Christ when he calls a man. It is effectual. It is irresistible. Verse 9 says, Jesus sees Matthew at work in the tax booth and calls him with two words, follow me. No lengthy conversation, no back-and-forth discussion, no point-counterpoint, no diplomacy, just follow me. It is a command. Matthew obeys it. He gets up and follows. The authority of God is revealed to the soul of Matthew as he hears the command of Christ. Now this call, follow me, it's no different in power and authority 
than when Jesus said to the leper, be clean. Or when he said to the demon-possessed man, come out of him. Or when he said to the paralytic, rise up. If a sinful man is to be converted anywhere upon the earth, if one has been converted anywhere upon the earth, Jesus must first speak to him with the same power and authority. Not audibly as a voice from heaven, but from the very voice of God's word, the very preacher who has been sent, or the mother who has read the Bible at home. It's probably a good reminder to how wonderful and important and how significant is family Bible reading, for therein Christ speaks with authority. Christ speaks with power. And many Christian adults can testify that they heard the voice of their master in power and authority in the living room, in the bedroom, when mom or dad was reading scripture. What we are talking about, theologians have a name for, the effectual call. The effectual call. There is a whole chapter devoted to this subject in the Westminster Confession of Faith at the back of your hymn book. What is the effectual call? Well, I'm about to give you an answer, but it's not the shorter catechism answer. It's a little filled out differently. The effectual call is the work of God's Spirit when he speaks into the soul of an unashamed sinner, and they are effectively changed. God graciously comes against their unwilling heart and gives them a heart of flesh. The stubborn will, the rebellious will, it is defeated by the effectual call. The will is renewed, and the sinner now comes to Christ willingly, not unwillingly, that's not the effectual call, but his will has been changed, and he comes willingly, freely, gladly, seeing Jesus as his soul's greatest good and Savior. Well, did you notice how prepared Matthew was for this effectual call of Christ? Verse 9 tells us he's sitting at the tax booth. He must have been reading Herman Bavink. No, he's reading no Christian book. He's actively engaged in the very activity that magnifies his wretchedness. He had not made himself ready to be called. He was not browsing the shelves at the Christian bookstore. He wasn't at a retreat where the speaker was discussing the truths of God. Matthew was sitting in the thicket of sin and not even struggling, not even trying to be free of it when Christ effectually called him. Jesus calling Matthew while he's sitting in the tax booth, is like Jesus calling a prostitute while she stands on the street corner. It is like Jesus calling a pedophile while he is secretly staring at a computer screen in his basement. It is like Jesus calling a meth dealer while he is walking a sidewalk outside a school, hoping for a deal. It is like Jesus calling a welfare welfare mom 
as she is at the grocery store using welfare money to buy cigarettes in the National Enquirer. It is like Jesus calling Levi at a tax booth. That, that effectual call. Well, let's say this. It's like Jesus calling a member of the Taliban ten minutes after he has pushed his wife to the ground for going out without her burqa. The effectual call requires no preparedness in the sinner because the effectual call is conducted and carried to the soul by the power and authority of Christ through the Spirit. That's why we see such an economy of movement in this text to accentuate the authority of Christ. Remember where we are in Matthew. We're in a series of vignettes of events that took place where Jesus demonstrated his authority over disease and demons. And now, right in that, he demonstrates his authority over the soul of man by his word. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls sinners in the thick of their death, in the thick of their darkness, in the thick of their rebellion. He does not call sinners only after they have cleaned up their act. He does not call sinners only after they have put all their embarrassing habits out of sight. Jesus calls sinners when they are deaf, when they are ignorant, when they are blind, when they are without godliness. It is the power of his call that gives them ears even, and gives them sight even, and gives them knowledge even. And this is how Christ called you. Do you believe this? If you are a Christian, it is because Jesus called you while you were dead. You may have looked quite tidy by the world's standards, but by God's standards, you were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. By God's standards, you were a child of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. Jesus called into that. Let me ask you, who do you think is most ready to hear the gospel? Is it the cute couple who moved in down the street who seem to really love their children? Are they more ready to hear the gospel than the person who is struggling with gender dysphoria and wouldn't dare step foot in a church? Is one of them more ready to hear the gospel? Is one of them less dead? Outside of Christ, men are dead in their sins and trespasses. Is it the wealthy businessman who's most ready to hear the gospel? Is it the charming co-worker who seems humble and competent who's most ready to hear the gospel? Is it the good physician with a wonderful bedside manner who's most ready to hear the gospel? Why is it always the people we like and admire that seem most ready to hear the gospel? You see, we like to call the wise and the righteous. Those are the ones we like to call to Christ. People we think need just a few adjustments in their lives. But that is not who Jesus calls. Our text says Jesus calls wretched sinners, the sick. Martin Luther had a helpful way of explaining why Jesus passes over so many wise 
and righteous men. Here's Luther. Take the talents of wisdom and integrity. Consider them. Without Christ, wisdom is double foolishness, and integrity, double sin. Because they not only fail to perceive the wisdom and righteousness of Christ, but hinder and blaspheme the salvation of Christ. Luther goes on, when the world is at its best, the world is at its worst. The grossest vices are small faults in comparison with the wisdom and righteousness of the world. The white devil of spiritual sin is far more dangerous than the black devil of carnal sin. Because the wiser, the better men are without Christ, the more they are likely to ignore and oppose the gospel. Those who are well need no physician. In verse 11, the Pharisees reveal just how blinded they are by the white devil of spiritual sin. They see Jesus engaged in the ultimate act of peace with the most wretched characters of Capernaum, And as they see him having this meal, they are puffed up by their own wisdom and integrity. They cannot see that Jesus is the righteousness for the bad men he is eating with. They can't see that at all. They can only see the bad men defiling Jesus. What does our Bible say? For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Pharisees can only see their own righteousness, which also means they cannot see how unrighteous they really are. And Jesus, therefore, responds directly to that great blindness in verse 12 where he quotes Hosea 6.6. Go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Can a religious man be properly called righteous in any meaningful way if he does not show mercy? Oh, beloved, get this answer right. The answer to the question is absolutely not. There is no meaningful way to call the most severe religious man righteous if he cannot show mercy. Because God is the God of all mercy. Mercy is of God's righteousness. It is ironic the Pharisees believed their goodness, and their separation from sinners would usher in the kingdom. That was part of their theology. But they believed their goodness was better than God's. You see, God's goodness is a goodness that mercifully gives the kingdom freely to the wretched by calling them to Christ. Not leaving them in their, continuing in their sin, of course not. But the emphasis of our text is not what became of Matthew so much, but where he was called from. 
God gives the kingdom to his own enemies. The Pharisees thought they were better men than to do something foolish like that. They were the worst of men, but they didn't see it. So they were the blindest of men. What is this meal about? Well, there is no doubt. In one of the other Gospels, we are told that Matthew decides to throw this meal for Jesus. Two little words in the Greek for him. This is a meal of celebration. Matthew has met his righteousness. Matthew has met his Messiah, his Savior. What do you then celebrate with your friends when you eat with them? Do you celebrate that you are as good as you are? Do you celebrate that you are not as bad as you could be? Do you celebrate that you are bad and that you don't care what people want you to be? Well, if you celebrate any of those, then you are in a kingdom of rebellion. Matthew is celebrating Jesus Christ, who is mercy embodied. One thing that often gets tangled up in our minds when we come to a passage like this one is that some will go away and maybe struggle, and they will say, I wish I had an amazing story like that. I wish I had been called to Christ out of a life of wretchedness, and I had this powerful contrast to help me feel the weight of grace and mercy. Well, if we are amazed at someone else's salvation more than our own, we have forgotten what our salvation really is. If we say it is a miracle that this once wicked fellow has now believed on Jesus, it is a miracle that this once loose woman is now following Jesus, if we say this, then we are foggy to the truth about our own origins, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, offspring of Adam the first. Beloved, you too have been called effectually and irresistibly in your death by the one who is all mercy. You must renew this in your soul. You must renew it, otherwise you will see your job as a Christian in the world to mark out who the bad people are so that you can keep them away from yourself, from your home, from your church. And you will become stingy in the offer of the gospel. You will only offer it to people that you have already slotted in the good people column. And you will be trying to give them a salvation that they are too wise and righteous for. Renew your heart in the truth of the gospel. It is for the sick, the sinner, the wretched. Put it to the test. Take it out and drive it around. Have dinner with the worst of men, the men that are on your uh, list. I don't know how you spell that. 
Invite them into your home. Speak of Jesus with them. Read Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Don't go overboard and stop doing your dishes and doing your laundry and eating with your family and spending time with your spouse. But don't going overboard is often a ruse to do nothing new. Renew this gospel of mercy, this king of mercy in your life. I don't have time to have dinner with these kind of people because I got these other things to do. Really? Oh, now the pastor's meddling. What do you have a life for in this age? If it is not to speak of Jesus to people, what do you have to do that is more important than telling people about Jesus and his great mercy? Yes, we have other things to do, but isn't that one of the things we have to do? Isn't that one of the things we want to do? There's a reason Jesus had his disciples at this meal. This is not just Jesus. This is all of them. You know why. Because he's discipling them. They're the disciples. He's teaching them how they are going to eat and conduct themselves. And this became an enormous theme in the life of Peter, who he would eat with and who he wouldn't eat with. And he oscillated like a fan from Walmart. Some days he got it right, some days he retreated and got it wrong. And it becomes a big theme in the scriptures. Peter's slow growth and wanting to be like his merciful king. Lord, help us. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we have been taken to this meal tonight ourselves. We have heard the wisdom and the integrity of self-righteous men who see much wrong with it. And we have heard the voice of the Master who sees the necessity of it. For he is the righteousness of those men with whom he sups in peace. For he will indeed even give them the loaf of his body and the wine of his blood and saying, be at peace. Our gracious God, we pray that you would renew the king of mercy and his ways in our heart. And that our lives would evermore be transformed and conformed to this image. That our minds would evermore be renewed in this truth. And that we would leave the wisdom and the integrity of fallen men behind. For it mocks the righteousness of Jesus the King, the King of mercy. In his name we pray, amen.